you would, go ahead and take out your Bibles with me this morning. Let's open them up to the book of Genesis, chapter 47. Genesis chapter 47. As we continue working our way verse by verse through this book of the Bible, today we are going to wrap up chapter 37 of the book of Genesis. So, Genesis 47, we're going to begin reading in verse 13 and read through the end of the chapter. Genesis 47, verse 13. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. When that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. And the herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields, because the famine was severe on them, the land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh. And four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt and the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, Put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, 
But let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. And then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Ah! Did you notice? Did you notice the pattern set for us in the beginning of that passage concerning government? Here we have Joseph, a man of God, using his position to increase the power of Pharaoh and the authority of the central government. Through Joseph, greater power is given to the throne. Through Joseph, the people of Egypt become even more dependent upon their government. That's what we see here. And doesn't this mean that all of those Christians who talk about small government and greater individual responsibility are contradicting the very Bible they claim to believe. Because here is Joseph, the hero of our story, heading up the consolidation and the increase of Pharaoh's power. Here is a pattern that Christians should get behind. Bigger and bigger government. Right? (laughs) How would you respond to that argument? Because somebody could read this passage and very much come away with that kind of thinking. So how would you respond to that argument? We do believe that the Bible was given to us for our instruction. And there is no denying that Joseph made the central government of the Egyptian empire stronger than it was. He increased taxes. He limited freedoms. He put the citizens into greater slavery. So what would be your answer to that kind of objection that we should follow, we should follow his pattern? Well, here's how I would respond. Three points as far as a response to that. First, we must remember that historical narratives in the Bible do not function as biblical commands. Let me say that again. Historical narratives in the Bible do not function as biblical commands. There are commands in the Bible. There are many parts of the Bible that explicitly tell us what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong. There are many passages that explicitly tell us what to think, what to speak, how to act if we are to obey God. The book of Genesis, however, is primarily a book of narrative. It's a book of stories. Now these are historical accounts. They are true stories, but they are stories. And sometimes... The heroes of these stories set a good example for us. Sometimes the heroes of these stories act in a way that does not set a good example for us. Just because something is recorded as having happened in the Bible doesn't mean that it is a pattern for us to follow. To say 
Joseph was a big government guy is not an argument that should carry much weight with us. Because Joseph was a sinner, just like you and I. And the Bible often records the failures and the foibles of its heroes. Moreover, God is the author of history. And sometimes, God ordains that things happen a certain way for reasons greater than we at first realize. Now, I'm going to explain that a little bit later. That I think bigger things are happening in this passage than God giving us a lesson on politics. For now, my first answer to that, Joseph was a big government guy. Joseph believed in people depending on the government. Therefore, you should do the same. My first answer would be biblical narratives are not biblical commands. Second, I would say we should always interpret Scripture by other Scripture. Always interpret Scripture by what you already know to be true from other parts of the Bible. So when we look at the rest of the Bible and what it says about governmental power in this world, it becomes very hard to make a case that Joseph's example would be one for us to promote in our land, in our day. Remember, the ancient nation of Israel was receiving this account in the very same scroll in which God revealed to them what their own government was going to look like. This passage was included along with Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, all in the same scroll. And this passage stood in stark contrast to the kind of government that God was telling Israel to establish. Here, the Israelites see the Egyptians losing their property rights to the government. What about Israel's law? God's law given to Israel guaranteed that families could not lose their property rights. In fact, each family at the beginning of the nation was allotted their property, and from that day on it was theirs, and it could never be taken away. Families could sell their property over decades so that others could farm it or make use of it. But every 70 years, in the year of Jubilee, what happened? All land went back to the family to whom it was originally owned. When Israel was established with God as its king, he demanded that each family have their own property. In our passage, Joseph sets up a double tithe, a 20% tax. One-fifths tax to be given to Pharaoh. Now that seems maybe a lot to you, 20%. Honestly, by the standards of the ancient Near East, Joseph was being kind. Typical tax in the ancient world was one-third. 33% of your income was to go to the government. But Israel's tax, what did God establish? 10%. Now, it seems that one reason God might have included this passage in our Bibles was to show ancient Israel how different it was to be ruled by Him than it was to be ruled by a human king. Power corrupts. Human kings become greedy. And God was saying to young ancient Israel at the beginning of their history, I am a gracious king. I am not like the Pharaoh. Trust me. Learn from me. Obey my laws. 
Now, of course, we know that Israel did not listen. And by the days of Samuel, they cried out for a human king. In fact, look with me real quickly at 1 Samuel 8. Turn over to 1 Samuel 8. Let me show you something here. 1 Samuel 8. This is God speaking through Samuel because the people would not be content with God as their gracious king. They wanted their own Pharaoh. They wanted their own human king like all the other nations. And so, 1 Samuel 8, beginning in verse 10. Look what God said through Samuel. 1 Samuel 8, beginning in verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. You see, God had said at the beginning of ancient Israel, I will be your king. I am a gracious king. Compare my laws to those of of Egypt under Pharaoh. And yet the people would not listen. And God warned them and said, if you set up for yourself a human king, it will only increase your burden. Now when we look to the rest of the pages of the Bible and say, what what else does God teach us about central governments? we find two strikingly different messages. Two strikingly different messages. And both are true. One message that we find is that government is God's servant to do us good. The rulers that are in power over us play an important role in restraining wickedness. This is Romans 13.4. Governments play an important role in bringing punishment on those who act in evil ways. And we are told as Christians to submit to the ruling authorities. We are told to pay our taxes when they are due, which just so happens to be now. But second, we find it to be simultaneously true that secular governments often use their power to oppress the people of God. Throughout the Bible, we have this theme of Babylon. And Babylon refers not just to the ancient empire of Babylon. Throughout the Bible, Babylon refers to empire after empire after empire that arises on the stage of the history of the world. And all of these empires have a few things in common. They become powerful... They achieve great military might. The citizens of these empires love their governments. They depend on their governments. They find joy in their governments. Here in Egypt, the people did not groan 
when, jo- when Joseph enacted these taxes, what does it say? They rejoiced, right? They had food. Yes, they just sold themselves to their government as slaves, but they had food to eat. In fact, if you look carefully, it was Joseph that suggested the policy of Pharaoh owning the livestock. It was the people who suggested the policy of Pharaoh owning them and their land. So one of the themes of Babylon throughout the Bible is that not only are the governments powerful, but the people love it to be so. Another common feature of these Babylons is that they repudiate true godliness and they turn their power into oppression upon God's people. The books of Daniel and Revelation describe this very graphically. Daniel, in particular, was describing the future Roman Empire. Uh, Peter will later call the Roman Empire Babylon. But here's how Daniel described the Roman Empire. He said, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And so you have this picture of this great beast, monstrous iron teeth, and it takes things into its mouth and it crunches them and then the pieces fall to the floor and then the beast takes his foot and stomps out whatever is left. That was the picture that God gave to Daniel of the Roman Empire towards God's people. Revelation describes the Roman Empire, as well as all Babylons, all empires like this, this way. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. That is, a perfect amount of time cut short. It opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation. So you see, throughout the Bible, we have these messages about great empires that use their power to persecute the people of God. And this is one reason why I would suggest that Christians might not be in favor of ever-growing central governments, especially when there is great military might at their disposal. The Bible is clear. Military might in this world is ultimately used against the people of God. The last feature I'll mention about these Babylons, these large, powerful, imperialistic governments, is that they tend to be marked by seasons of prosperity in which the, the citizens indulge themselves in worldly pleasures. And so the peoples of these empires tend to be very worldly. After the famine is over, this is going to mark Egypt. Egypt was a very early Babylon, great power, ruling over the ancient world in its day, strong central government, strong military might, and the people lived in sexual immorality and debauchery. Certainly marked the Babylonian Empire. In fact, when the Persians crept into the city of Babylon, they were able to destroy the Babylons. Why? Because they were all drunk in the midst of this great festival that they were having. 
The Greeks, the Romans, their cultures became very corrupt and immoral. And so will all future Babylons. Revelation 18, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sensual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. All this is to say, when you consider these things, it would be very unwise for us to look at the consolidation of Pharaoh's power in our passage as setting an example for us to imitate. Because remember, we're in Genesis 47. Just a few pages, you're in Exodus 1. What is Pharaoh's great power being used to do in Exodus 1? It has put the people of Israel into slavery, and it is burdening them and persecuting them, and he will not let God's people go. So I've given you two answers for why we shouldn't read this passage as God setting an example for great big government. But let me give you one other reason. And that is this. There are more important reasons that God gave us this passage. (laughs) There is other reasons. There is another agenda that God has in giving us Genesis 47, 13 through 31. And it is not about Politics, at least not earthly politics. I already mentioned that one reason God gave us this passage was so that ancient Israel at its inception could see what a better God, what a better king God was than the Pharaoh of Egypt. But there are other reasons. Back in verse 12, we are told that Joseph provided for his father and his brothers And all his household. And then in the very next verse, we are told that the people of Egypt were starving and that they ultimately sell themselves into slavery in order to have food. These verses are given to us so that we will sense just how severe this famine was. I've told you before picture those scenes from television commercials of of, uh, starving children in Africa with their bellies extended and their their bodies all weak and frail and you can see the, the, the ribs and the bones. That's the kind of famine that causes people to say, buy me and my land, just give me food. This was a severe famine. And yet what do we just read in verse 12 about Jacob and his family? They were provided for. They were cared for. And then we read on. By the way, do you know in verse 13 and verse 14 and verse 15, Joseph, I'm sorry, Moses doesn't just say that the Egyptians were starving and coming to Pharaoh. In all three verses, he mentions that this was happening in Canaan too. Three times Moses says this was also happening in Canaan. The people of Canaan were experiencing this. We read in this passage of the terrible straits that Jacob and his family would have been in had God not providentially worked to get them into Goshen under Joseph's protection at just the right time. 
Had Jacob stayed in Canaan, his family would be with the rest of them, starving, begging Pharaoh for food. But instead, what has happened? Here they are in Goshen. Verse 27, Jacob's buying land. Everybody else is selling their land to Pharaoh. Just give us food. Jacob's buying land. He's got land for his flocks. He's seen his flocks multiply. All of Egypt and Canaan starving. Jacob and his family becoming fruitful. Now we're supposed to marvel at that. And we're supposed to see the providence of God here. And you and I are supposed to see that God keeps his promises to care for his people. That God is faithful to bless his people. These physical realities are meant to teach us the greater spiritual realities that if we are God's, He will protect us. That our Jesus is a good shepherd. And when the world and the flesh and the devil try to starve our faith, He will make sure we have what we need. Jesus will bring us safely through every trial and tribulation while the rest remain dead in their sins and trespasses by God's free grace, our souls will be continually growing in abundant life and blessing. Christ will bring us through death into His glorious presence. We are now, we shall ever be secure in Him. Just as secure as Jacob and his family in Goshen while the rest of the ancient world around them is dying. Do you see the picture? Do you see the message this was meant to give to the people of Israel? Trust your God. He will care for you, even in the midst of the hardest times. Before we move on, let me make two more points. First, note that one group of people that were spared, one group of people that was spared by Joseph's policies was the priest of Egypt. Uh, these were pagan priests, but it was they that were spared from having to sell themselves and their fields to the Pharaoh, them and, and the family of Israel. I think this is a reminder to us that God's people are priests, right? Who got spared this policy? The priests? Oh, and Jacob's family. And the message is, Jacob's family was like priests. In other words, all of God's people are priests. We are a kingdom of priests. We have access to God through Jesus Christ. And then secondly, I think there is a deeper meaning to this passage. And I think it's this. Because right now, we, we could still come away saying, Joseph, what were you thinking? Joseph, why did you give all this power to Pharaoh? Joseph, why did you let these people sell themselves into slavery? Joseph, what were you thinking? Well, friends, I am convinced that whatever was going on in Joseph's mind, this passage happened the way it did for a reason. God was up to something. And I think the key is to remember that throughout his life, Joseph has been a shadow of Jesus. We've seen it countless times in this study. 
that Joseph was a living foreshadowing of a greater Savior to come. Joseph was a shadow of Christ in being the beloved of his father. Joseph was a shadow of Christ in being the one who was persecuted by his kinsmen. Joseph was a shadow of Christ in the way he suffered great temptation and yet stayed strong. Joseph has stood as a picture of Christ in the way he became an instrument of salvation for God's people. Right now, Joseph is a picture of Christ in his rule and in his authority. Joseph is serving at the right hand of Pharaoh. And with that obligation, he is extending and deepening the reign of Pharaoh. And I would suggest that what Joseph does in this chapter is a picture of what Jesus Christ is doing this very day. God the Father is the great King who who rules over all things. But there is a sense in which man's sin has estranged this world from a true relationship with God. There is a real sense in which the devil is the God of this world. But now through the Spirit and the Gospel, Jesus is changing that. Just as Joseph extends and deepens the power of Pharaoh, the reign of Pharaoh, the dominion of Pharaoh in Genesis 47, Jesus sitting at the right hand of God this very day by His Spirit, by His gospel, is extending and deepening the dominion of His Father through the salvation of souls. How did it happen? I'll give you bread. You must be Pharaoh's. What does Jesus say to us at salvation? I give you myself, the bread of life, but you must be God's. Give yourself to God. Surrender yourself to God. Find your joy in God. Give your allegiance to God. Turn from your sins. Trust Him and you will have eternal life. And then God's dominion deepens in your soul and you live. And God, of course, is a much better king than Pharaoh. Amen? Does everybody see how this is a foreshadowing of the very work of Jesus today? Every part of Joseph's life has been a foreshadowing of Jesus. Every part. This part of the Bible is just broken open for us, right? It's incredible. Every part of Joseph's life is a foreshadowing of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus is saving souls from death and at the same time extending, glorifying deepening his father's dominion. Now, very quickly, look with me at the end of our passage. Look at the end of our passage. Verses 29 through 31. We come to Jacob, Israel. He's an old man. He knows that his days on this earth are coming to an end. He calls for his son, Joseph. Joseph comes. Jacob says to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Jacob is speaking here in very humble language. He is speaking usually in the way a subordinate would speak to a superior. And so Jacob is humbling himself before his son. He's recognizing that God has given Joseph great authority and power. And Jacob is asking his son to do something for him. 
He's making a very solemn and serious request of Joseph. He asked Joseph to put his, put his hand under his thigh. That is a euphemism used in several places in the Bible. Jacob is asking Joseph to lay his hand on that part of his body that has produced life, including Joseph's life. We're never told why the patriarchs took oaths this way, but they did it on several occasions. It seems reasonable to assume that it was related to God's promise that from them a multitude of nations would come. Sometimes people read passages like this and they get worked up about, wait a minute, are we supposed to take oaths? How can Jacob get Joseph to swear? Well, let me remind us that the Bible does not forbid all taking of oaths. Jesus took an oath when he was on trial. Paul takes oaths in his letters. When submission to authority demands it, or when necessity requires it, an oath may be taken in God's name. We must always be sure to faithfully fulfill any oath that we take. Oaths are never to be taken lightly. If you make one, fulfill it. And most important of all, in the pages of the Bible, don't ever take an oath in the name of anyone but God. A lawful oath is calling upon God as the only one who knows the heart to bear witness to the truth and to punish if the person is lying or fails to fulfill what they have promised to do. It's an honor which belongs to God alone. The Bible speaks very strongly about the sin of swearing in any other name than the name of God. Oaths are to be taken seriously and to done before God alone. So what did Jacob ask his son to swear to do? Well, he asked his son not to bury him in Egypt, but to carry his body into Canaan, to the place where his fathers are buried. And Joseph was willing to make this oath. So what was the significance of this? Why was that so important to Jacob? Well, it was Jacob's way of saying at the very end of his life, Egypt is not my home. Jacob was still believing God's promise of a day when his descendants would be established as a holy nation in the promised land. Jacob was ending his life with faith. What was it that Jacob was still especially trusting God for? The same thing his grandfather Abraham died trusting God for? The same thing that his father Isaac died trusting God for? Listen to Hebrews 11, speaking about Abraham, Sarah, Jacob, Isaac. It says these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, the land of Ur, where Abraham was from, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. And therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. In other words, at the very end of Jacob's life, 
Jacob was still trusting God for a city, a nation, a kingdom that would be heavenly. He was looking forward to a day when God would rule over a nation and the people of that nation would be holy and blessing would be everywhere and righteousness would reign. Dear friends, Jacob died a citizen of that kingdom though it was only in the preliminary stages of being formed then, you and I live in the day when that kingdom is almost fully formed. (laughs) I believe probably we're near the end of Jesus gathering the citizens of that great kingdom. Jacob died looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth. He probably didn't know it by that name. We do. But he died longing for that better country, having not yet received it, but believing that it was going to come. He had lived as a stranger in this world. At this point, he is happy to say goodbye to this world. He is ready to go to his heavenly home. And so I close by asking us, will we, like Jacob, come to the end of our lives still hungering and thirsting for that land where righteousness dwells and God will be with His people. One of my favorite hymns says this, The sands of time are sinking, the dawn of heaven breaks, the summer morn I've sighed for, the fair sweet morn awakes. Picture of the morning sun rising. Dark, dark has been the midnight, But day spring is at hand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The king there in his beauty, without a veil, is seen. It were a well-spent journey, though seven deaths had lain between. The lamb with his fair army doth on Mount Zion stand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. O Christ, He is the fountain, the deep sweet well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness His mercy doth expand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace. Not at the crown He giveth, but on His pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Yes, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. And He brings this poor vile sinner into His house of wine. I stand upon His merit. I know no other stand, not even where glory dwelleth, in Emmanuel's land. Dear friends, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they died longing for Emmanuel's land. They trusted God. They lived waiting for it. They died believing that not even their death was going to keep them from it. How about you? Are you longing for a land that is fairer than day? Do you trust God's promise that if you are trusting in Jesus, He will give it to you? It is His delight to give it to you. Will you come to the end of your life believing God for that place? 
pray that you will. Let's pray.